You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the Room Now faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Aurélie Najm from Glasgow reporting for Room Now. Um, I don't know what you have said about this last day of the conference. I hope you really enjoyed it. I actually did. And today we're super lucky because we have Dr. John Giles with us from Columbia University. Um, and he is here with us to discuss about the two big studies that we've seen yesterday, Abstract 1428 and today, Abstract 1915, about corticosteroids and cardiovascular risk. So um, just to summarize them very, very briefly, um, 1428, uh, 26,000 US veterans, um, and uh, 1915 Medicare database, um, about more than 130,000 patients. So I think the message is clear. Um, what can you tell us about that, John? Well, you know, I think we have a lot of evidence from both from people who have rheumatic diseases and from the general population that that corticosteroids are associated with uh, cardiovascular risk, primarily because they're atherogenic. Um, they increase blood pressure, they increase blood sugar, they induce diabetes, they um, and and they clearly have um, proatherogenic properties, and despite the fact that they are anti-inflammatory as opposed to most of the other medications that we use. So I think the, those data are, are very compelling, even though they are observational and there's the possibility for, for confounding by indication because the people that you give the, the highest doses, at least of corticosteroids are the folks that uh, probably have more inflammation. So there's probably some element of confounding by indication that we see here. So the magnitudes may not be um, you know, the true magnitudes may not be quite as great, but it's hard to explain away the magnitude with just uh, confounded by indication. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I think it would be quite interesting. The, 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 do we have any data where actually the, the, the analysis was adjusted on disease activity? Do we have any of that? That's, I mean, it's harder to do from these types of of data sets, especially the large administrative claims data sets, because we don't typically get the, that amount of, uh, of information. And it's not just, you know, the issue is that when people are on corticosteroids, there's, there are different reasons that they're on. Some, most patients with RA who are on low-dose corticosteroids are not on low-dose corticosteroids because of the inflammation that they have today. You know, they've been maintained on a low-dose of steroids for a long time. So in those people, the confounding by indication probably doesn't make that, that big of a difference or, or is not playing as big of a role. Now, when we're getting into the bigger doses, then those are the folks who are probably have just been put on that dose. There's all the issues of tapering. There's all the issues of whether they're really taking their doses. Um, yeah. I know in my experience that when I write a steroid prescription, it's not usually written exactly the way I intend them to take it because I often want them to have a little extra just in case you know they need it at some point. So yeah. those types of claims are, you know, you can't really exactly tell um, from those. Um, so I think it's, it, it really makes this type, there's a lot of wiggle room in terms of, of what the actual numbers are, but there's a dose effect here, you know, and it's, and it's pretty, pretty profound. So I think that there's, 
definitely some truth uh, to this, and it's not just explained by confounding by indication. Yeah, no, and coming back to that, to that uh, dose effect, I mean, it was quite interesting to see how things increase very gradually. And, and you know, there's already a, a increase in the risk below five milligrams a day, because I've heard that for so long. I remember when I was a resident, I was hearing, oh, you know, below five milligrams, that's fine, you can keep going. And actually, it doesn't seem to be true. Also, what was coming from the, the, the other abstract was the short duration of, of treatment that could have already an impact. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's um, there. Are, there is probably some patients in whom very short um, uh, courses of steroids, especially if they're at relatively high doses, might be enough to tip some people over the edge. The mechanism by that is for, uh, maybe not quite so clear. You know, if you have uh, a sudden rise in blood pressure in a person who has a lot of vulnerable, unstable plaques, that could be something that that changes things around. There's a lot of fluid shifting, you know, maybe they could go into a heart failure exacerbation and that could shift things. Um, uh, so that on an individual basis, then, then it might make a difference. You know, we are looking at, we're not looking at thousands and thousands of events in these, uh, in these studies, you know, we're still looking at relatively rare events. So it's, it's not as, and it's something that you're probably not going to see in, you know, in your own experience, you're going to give lots and lots of courses of steroids and everything's going to be fine. And you're going to say these drugs are fine. But, um, you know, there's the, the um, cases that if you conglomerate everything together, you're going to see that they're, they're increased. Now, again, you know, recognizing that these are not randomized and that treat, finding, uh, understanding treatment effects um, is difficult in, the, in these types of studies. But there does seem to be a signal through multiple different lines of evidence, BA, prior studies, administrative claims, you know, it's, it's something that seems to be uh, a fairly consistent theme. Yeah. And from different methodologies as well, different cohort, different population. I mean, I think I, I agree with you. I think this is quite clear. So now the question is, what are we going to do? Are we going to tell all our patients, right, you need to stop your staring? <laughs> I think it's really, it's really difficult. You know, I tell, I tell my patients and I tell my colleagues, you know, it'd be great to live in a steroid free world. Um, I, you know, not just from the standpoint of inflammatory arthritis, but from the standpoint of diseases like the vasculitides, where we have to use really high doses of steroids in people who are at quite high risk for cardiovascular disease, but we have to do it that way. Um, so the, as the recommendations, the ULAR recommendations for cardiovascular risk are, is to keep, you know, the lowest dose that you can get away with. Of yeah. both steroids and NSAIDs is 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 what we should do. The other is you know how to get people off of steroids as yeah. well, um, and that can be a big challenge because you know the the short and medium term period after tapering steroids um, is not great for people. A lot of people who have been on steroids for a long time, even small doses, and it's hard for them to know that if they just stick it out a little bit longer, or if we taper a little slower, that they're going to be successful. Um, in getting those off because they, they really do, they feel tired and washed out and fatigued. And, and that's a, and if all it takes is, is popping another five milligrams of prednisone in, and that instantaneously goes away, that's a real reinforcer for our patients to stay on, stay on the drugs, despite our best efforts. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, 
Um, I've, I've been on steroids once in my life and I never wanted to go out of them. I mean, that was great. <laughs> yeah. Cause they, you know, they have a, they can have a stimulant effect in people yeah. even at lower doses and, and it, and taking them away really, um, can feel pretty crappy for patients. I think there have been some, some efforts to, to show that, um, very slow tapering, even by yeah, half a milligram of prednisone, yeah. you know, over, over weeks at a time is, is a strategy for doing that, but it takes a lot of dedication and, and, uh, you know, and then the very next flare, you know, here we are again, in the same position. So I, I do, I also tell people that I couldn't be a rheumatologist without using steroids. You know, I, yeah. we just could not, we could not, uh, uh, work our jobs without, without this particular drug. So I think, you know, we have to use it as carefully and safely as we can. And also recognizing, you know, who are the people for whom, uh, we could probably, we have some more leeway in using the low dose steroids and then who are the people who are probably going to benefit the least, at least from a safety perspective. I definitely agree with that. Why, why do you think these results were more, um, uh, at least more significant um, or just significant in the, in the oldest population? Why do you think it's not reproduced in the youngest one, especially in the, in the 1915 abstract yeah. in the upcoming data? I think it's because the, the effect of the steroids is, um, especially for most people, is going to be over a longer period of time. The atherogenic properties um, of steroids don't happen very quickly. Um, they're, they're really over a longer period of time. So I, and, and in people who probably already have some atherogenesis that's, that's already started. Um, so it, you know, while we, we talked about, there may be some people who take the shorter course of steroids and then they have, that pushes them over. Probably most of the effect is, is more of a chronic, um, mm. pro-atherogenic effect. And that's what you're seeing in the, in the longer term when you're looking at people on longer term doses. Okay, so I think uh, I think that was very informative. That's very nice. Thank you so much for uh, for being here and chatting with me about about that topic. Um, I really hope that next year we're going to be able to all meet face to face, especially since we've been discussing this just before we started this interview. We need our, our step counts in a day right. <laughs> we need to be in the conference for our cardiovascular risk. That's right. I usually get, you know, something like 25,000, 30,000 steps in during the ACR meeting. And here I'm getting, you know, from between here and the refrigerator. So that's not good for any of our hearts. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So thank you so much. Thank you everyone for watching this video. Uh, go on rumnow.com for more um, scientific rheumatology content and follow me on Twitter at Aurelie Raimo. Hello, I'm Jonathan Kay reporting for Room Now at ACR Convergence 2021, which was to have taken place in San Francisco. One of the highlights of this year's ACR Convergence is the presentation of data from Pfizer's oral surveillance study which was a phase 3b, phase 4 randomized safety study that compared tofacitinib to the TNF inhibitors adalimumab and etanercept in RA patients aged 50 or older who had at least one additional cardiovascular risk factor. Today, in abstract 1940, Jeff Curtis presented data from this study indicating that incidence rates for all malignancies, excluding non-melanoma skin cancers, were numerically higher for both tofacitinib 5 milligrams and 10 milligrams daily than for the TNF inhibitors. 
the hazard ratio for all malignancies, again, excluding non-melanoma skin cancers, was significantly greater for tofacitinib versus TNF inhibitors at 1.5. Older age, 65 or greater, and current or past smoking were independent risk factors that increased the malignancy rate across treatments. However, without a control group not treated with either tofacitinib or TNF inhibitors, one cannot distinguish between an effective tofacitinib increasing malignancy risk or of TNF inhibitors decreasing the risk of malignancy. So what might be a biological basis for tofacitinib increasing the occurrence of malignancy in RA patients? Paroxinase 1 is an enzyme secreted by the liver that associates with HDL cholesterol and hydrolyzes a wide variety of substrates. As such, it has several different enzymatic activities, including paroxinase, lactinase, and arylesterase. Paroxinase 1 contributes to the antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties of HDL cholesterol. This enzyme is encoded by the PON1 gene, polymorphisms of which at the Q192R allele have been associated with a reduced risk of malignancies. Ian McGinnis has previously shown that tofacitinib increases paroxinase activity. On Sunday, in abstract 980, Christina Charles Showman presented results of a study that investigated the relationship between PON1 genotype, paroxinase 1 activity, and risk of malignancy in nearly 2,000 RA patients who participated in the phase 2 and phase 3 development program for tofacitinib. Among these patients, 53 developed malignancies. Comparing the RR-PON1 genotype to the QQ genotype, paroxinase activity was increased, and both lactinase and arylesterase activity were decreased. After controlling for baseline risk factors associated with malignancies, including tofacitinib dose, age, smoking, and RA duration, higher paroxinase activity over time was associated with a lower malignancy risk in RA patients treated with tofacitinib during the phase two and phase three development program. However, no association was observed for either lactinase or arylesterase activity and risk of malignancies. This is consistent with the observed reduced risk of malignancies that has been associated with PON1 gene polymorphisms at the Q192R allele. Then how did these data inform our understanding of the increased malignancy risk observed with tofacitinib versus TNF inhibitors in the oral surveillance study? If tofacitinib increases peroxinase activity, which in turn decreases malignancy risk, it may be that TNF inhibitors had an effect greater than that of tofacitinib on decreasing the malignancy risk among subjects in the oral surveillance study. Alternatively, more tofacitinib-treated subjects in this study might have had the QQ genotype of PON1, which is associated with lower paroxinase activity than the RR genotype. To address this hypothesis, it would be interesting to have PON1 genotyping performed on the RA patients who participated in the oral surveillance study. This investigation links an enzyme associated with HDL cholesterol, which hydrolyzes and destroys oxidized lipids with a reduction in malignancy risk. The observation that tofacitinib increases peroxinase activity has important implications regarding interpretation of the oral surveillance study. Might tofacitinib actually reduce absolute malignancy risk in patients with RA? For more coverage of ACR Convergence 2021, go to roomnow.com. I'm Jonathan Kay.
Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope, a reporter at Room Now. My Twitter handle is at Janet Bordeaux. I'm reporting on rheumatic diseases that really can take your breath away. So I'm going to start with some scleroderma um, information. So abstract 1846 by Dinesh Khanna et al. looked at the Nintendinib study, RCT, in active pulmonary fibrosis or interstitial lung disease that was a fibrotic type phenotype in systemic sclerosis where patients were randomized to nintendinib or placebo. So that's data from the census trial. And overall, not surprisingly, and fortunately for our patients, it was a positive study showing less worsening with patients on nintendinib than on placebo of whom in each group about half were on background mycophenolate mofetil. They've already presented, uh, members of the census group have presented that mycophenolate mofetil plus nintendinib seem to give the least amount of worsening, so slowing worsening of FEC, then it was either nintendinib or mycophenolate mofetil. And then if you were on placebo and no mycophenolate mofetil, you had the most worsening. So today what they wanted to ask was, um, the factors of rapidly progressive interstitial lung disease, when, if you looked in the scleroderma patients in the census trial, did they make a difference on intendative being more protective? And the easy answer is yes, they did. But these are the factors. Early diffuse systemic sclerosis would have more decline in FBC, so it was more protected with nintendinib. High inflammatory markers like CRP or probably ESR, again, high inflammatory markers, more protective if you run nintendinib than placebo. A high modified rod and skin score that wasn't so high, they cut it off at about 18, but you have to realize about a third of the patients in the study were limited cutaneous systemic sclerosis and they would have a really low uh, skin score. So all these things fared better individually if you were unintended than placebo. Then they did something really smart and they combined the data and showed that Nintendinib with all these groups combined, the highest risk groups, um, it was still more protective on Nintendinib than placebo. So I think really just showing the consistency of the data. The other thing for healthcare utilization, which is important, um, there was an abstract um, number 1839. It was a poster and it was a US cohort of scleroderma patients, the Genesis cohort. And it looked at um, morbidity and in this case, mortality of uh, by ethnic uh, lines. So white, black, Asian, and Asians had the medium amount, uh, or sorry, white, black, Hispanic, and Hispanic patients had medium mortality. So black, the worst, and the Hispanics, interestingly, were younger, had more RNP, and had more uh, lupus overlap. Right now, we're not sure, though, um, who had more ILD and what the cause of death was in these patients. So more will come on that. Then there was a really nice oral presentation that um, I think needs a, a shout out. And that was looking at RA, ILD and survival. And this was presented by a trainee and she did a great job. And I thought it was one of ACR best. So it was abstract number um, 1918. It was presented today at the um, ACR 21 convergence. And I thought it was the smoking gun because she followed patients from the VA. So we know VA has more men and higher rates of smoking than general population of RA patients. So they had RA, they were mostly smokers and they had uh, far more males and females because of where the data were um, gathered from. And um, there were two things that the questions were to ask. 
What about mortality with RA if you had ILD and high disease activity or moderate rheumatoid disease activity? And what about damage as measured by the uh, MD hack? So the health assessment questionnaire of functional impairment and both damage and disease activity of RA, so of their joints, both independently predicted lack of survival, so increased mortality, and those with RA-ILD. So the take home is that certainly RA um, can make you breathless, but RA disease activity will kill you more so. We have shown with um, one of my trainees and published uh, this year in ANR that high uh, self-reported disability, so a high HAC score or high functional impairment and early rheumatoid arthritis did reduce um, survival over the long term. So I think all this sort of factors in that no matter what, whether it's your lungs or not with your RA, you've got to treat the underlying disease in the RA, the inflammatory arthritis. So please follow us at Room Now. I think you'll find that there is a huge plethora of data on ACR 2021. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dr. Rachel Tate for RoomNow.com, and I am at ACR Convergence 2021. And today I wanted to share with you RoomNow's Team PSA Best of for Tuesday, um, day four, um, November 9th, 2021. So we have discussed MACE events continually in rheumatoid arthritis, but what does this information, what does this data look like for our psoriatic arthritis population? So, Dr. All I'm going to say his name wrong, and I apologize in advance, Dr. Ajmal et al. in Abstract 1833 looked at MACE events in Phase 3 and Phase 4 RCTs that reported safety in psoriatic arthritis patients on biologics and or DMARDs. So 33 trials ended up meeting inclusion criteria, and patients were treated with upadacidinib, gazelkimab, combination methotrexate and etanercept, golimumab, etanercept monotherapy, apremilast, adalimumab, sertilizumab, and secukinumab. Overall, the team found that there were no significant statistical differences that were observed among the different biologics or targeted synthetic agents that we use for psoriatic arthritis. So ultimately, though this was a small trial, they only looked at 33 different RCTs, the composite MACE outcomes overall were not different among psoriatic arthritis patients treated with biologics or with DMARDs. So what this tells me in clinic is that hopefully if we are treating our patients who have psoriatic arthritis to the best of our ability and we're having these discussions with them, hopefully we will have the comfort of knowing that at least with this small trial, there have been no additional MACE events and outcomes that we need to worry about other than having those normal conversations for risks and benefits with our patients. So this is hopefully a tool that gives you some improvement in your quality of life um, as a rheumatologist talking with your patients on a daily basis. I think we need more information and more evidence behind this, but it, this for me gave me a breath of relief. So please continue to check out roomnow.com for more ACR Convergence 2021 coverage. And of course, follow me on Twitter at UpToTate. Hi, this is Dr. Robert Chow, reporting live from ACR 2020, the last day uh, for roomnow.com. Um, I'd like to share with you one of my final uh, highlights in the world of psoriatic arthritis today. And uh, this particular abstract focuses more on uh, how do we predict uh, the patients who transitioned from um, psoriasis to psoriatic arthritis. 
And this was abstract 1798, uh, where they looked at uh, exactly that. And they looked at uh, what are the risk factors or potential uh, uh, markers for, for progression of psoriasis to psoriatic arthritis. Um, this study had over 380 patients. And one of their main findings uh, was that uh, older patients, patients over 40, uh, progressed to psoriatic arthritis from psoriasis uh, much faster, actually 12 years faster than those who were diagnosed around the teenage years of 18. Um, interestingly enough, they also looked at other factors such as gender, family history of psoriasis, uh, BMI, nail involvement, um, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, uh, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, inflammatories, and uh, alcohol and smoking. And none of them had uh, an impact like age does. So I think with this study, uh, two take home points is one, I mean, for me, at least personally, I know when I see uh, a patient who is now over 40 with psoriasis, um, I will be much more diligent in, in making sure uh, that the psoriatic arthritis component does not creep up faster than uh, we anticipated. And number two, I think, you know, this discussion of alcohol and smoking and psoriatic arthritis is always, it's been uh, kind of puzzling, at, at least in a few abstracts in this year's ACR. Um, and this one, again, um, alcohol and smoking did not really provide a signal in terms of a faster, faster transition uh, from psoriasis to psoriatic arthritis. So stay tuned for, for more information on, on alcohol and smoking and, and psoriatic arthritis. Um, but anyway, thank you for tuning in um, for live coverage of ACR 2021. Uh, tune into roomnow.com and follow me on Twitter at Dr. RBC. Thanks. Hi, I'm David Liu from Melbourne, Australia, reporting for Room Now um, from ACR 21, the virtual conference. And I'm delighted to be joined by So Young Kim, who is from the Brigham uh, and Women's Pharmacoepidemiology Group, um, and is rheumatologist there as well. So Young, welcome to, to Room Now. Sure, thank you. Thank you for the invitation and uh, delighted to be here uh, as well. Um, and I'm in Boston, uh, so uh, uh, pleased to meet you and um, you know, whoever is listening later, thank you for listening. <laughs> and congratulations as well on your ACR award. Uh, you won the Henry Kunkel uh, um, Early Career Investor Investigator Award, and we have a lot of people um, at Room Now who were rooting for you. So, um, congratulations on that as well. Oh, thank you, thank you. That uh, it uh, it means a lot, and it's such a, uh, an honor. Uh, you know, I've been, you know, kind of hoping and wanting to get the award ever since I was a fellow. So, uh, kind of like you know, my dream came true. You know, it's a really good feeling, and I I am I am very grateful for that. Well, I mean, I think we're all very glad your dreams came true, and um, and also that you know, I think this is it's reflected in in the whole body of work that um, you or much of well, you presented a whole lot at this meeting. Um, but in particular, we're here today to talk a bit about the Star RA study, um, about, which looks at the uh, topic of the day: topicism of safety. Yeah. So yeah, uh, uh, of course, um, you know, TOFAs. Um, Trier uh, data are somewhat, I think, unexpected, and you know, it was, I don't know, like disappointment to some degree. And I think a lot of patients were also surprised. I was surprised, mm -hmm. um, and because I think it's a priori, I don't think anybody really kind of 
thought that that would happen. And um, and I've been following a lot of safety um, clinical trials just because I, you know, I like studying drug safety and we don't really have a, a, the luxury of having you know safety trials for every single drug. So whenever something like uh, this happens, I get you know particularly excited uh, because this is when I get to have the gold standard data from trial uh, for the drug safety, and then I get to use real world data to see whether that is the in a case in. Uh, more generalizable population, right? So um, for me, it's a unique, very unique and important opportunity, uh, although what we have found or what they found is somewhat unfortunate. Uh, but in any case, I think the, you know, as you know, the uh, or surveillance trial was done um, uh, because of the, uh, the regulator, uh, regulator's mandate, uh, you know, phase two and three uh, TOFA trials, they, uh, has some concerns about certain safety signals and you know usually phase two and three trial too small too short to uh, find anything meaningful you know with regard to the safety risk so you know obviously this phase three b uh, four uh, safety trial was initiated many years ago and you know this is the issue with all the trial right so it's, one is very expensive two um, you know it takes time um, to get going and you know, even after they start uh, enrolling, it takes time to finish all the enrollment and follow up. So I think it was started many years ago, more than five, I think probably seven, eight years ago. And now we are still waiting to see the final product of the trial because, you know, we heard a lot uh, from um, from uh, Pfizer uh, during this meeting, basically, uh, you know, the piece of different um, outcomes, but we, we still don't um, have the full paper. Uh, while, um, you know, initially, I think maybe more than a year ago, the first uh, signal they found was a VT risk associated with a high dose of uh, tofacitin, 10 milligram BID. And then, it, it, you know, um, my group at the time, there was last day, so actually we presented at the la uh, late breaking, uh, I think, or maybe two years ago, I don't remember. Uh, but we, um, you know, we actually conducted the risk of VTE associated with TOFA compared to TNF, not knowing that's what they were going to um, find, because mainly we conducted that study based on the um, the signal from bericitinib trier. So in a bericitinib pre-marketing trier. And then while we were conducting it and then we were presenting at ACR, the uh, FDA uh, communication came actually uh, afterward. So we somehow happened to be at the good timing <laughs> and our work was published uh, in our arthritis and rheumatology at the time. Um, and then, you know, for cardiovascular risk and cancer risk this time, we got the uh, FDA announcement and some other media uh, uh, news release um, earlier uh, uh, this year, uh, I think February, 2021. And then we immediately wanted to um, run a real world based cohort study to replicate and to kind of see, you know, their validity uh, in a different uh, data source and in a more in a representative uh, population. But what we, we actually did, and we didn't probably get to talk about it during the meeting was, we actually um, registered 
the full study protocol at clinicaltrial.gov. So if you search clinicaltrial.gov with a star RA uh, study, you probably uh, find our protocol with all the details, just like you know the trial trialist uh, register their protocol at clinicaltrial.gov. We actually, even though we are not required to do so, we wanted to also be as rigorous as possible. So we registered our um, study pro protocols um, upfront and then initiated our analysis. Using three data set, we wanted to, um, you know, ask the same question, you know, whether the risk of cardiovascular event is higher or not higher with the TOFA compared to TNF in the overall RA patient. So that is our primary cohort. We call it real world evidence cohort. So everybody, uh, I think age 18 or 20, I think that was our adult age cutoff. And we had all five TNF as a class. Um, so if they are taking one of them, they are in the reference group. And then, um, for the subgroup, uh, out of this real-world evidence cohort, we had the RCT duplicate cohort. Um, so we can um, mimic as much, again, not exactly because we don't have ACR criteria, we don't have certain things that they have in the trial, uh, but we use uh, some of the criteria that uh, the OR surveillance trial uh, had for enrollment to uh, restrict the study cohort for you know, a high cardiovascular baseline risk. And then when the study, you know, make, make, we made sure that the confounding was, you know, minimized. We cannot be completely avoided, but, you know, we've done our best to minimize. Um, and what we found is, uh, you know, again, shared uh, uh, during this meeting, um, in the real world evidence cohort, we found a comparable risk of cardiovascular events uh, between TOFA and TNF inhibitors. Um, but in the uh, RCT duplicate cohort, again, patient with the RA and some baseline um, risk factor for cardiovascular disease, we found a numerically increased risk of cardiovascular disease similar to um, what our surveillance trial uh, found. Our patients are older, um, generally speaking, because we had a Medicare uh, data set included. Um, but you know, I think what this tells me is, you know, if I have a patient who is like 40 something, 50 something year old, female or ma uh, male, but you know, have no other you know, worrisome risk factor for cardiovascular disease, maybe you know, their absolute risk of um, cardiovascular disease from TOFA is maybe not that high. Maybe that's okay. Um, but if somebody is like over 60, 65, or even 70, and you know, they're a smoker or had an uh, you know small MI before, something like that, then maybe those are people either I try to use something else, or if TOFA or you know is the only thing that I have, uh, then I have to have a serious conversation, right? Absolutely. So I think that's what we found. Yeah. Well, congratulations on such a um, rigorously run uh, study. Um, do you think that uh, that those the results that you have from Starra have made you um, believe the uh, concerns that um, have come out of oral surveillance more or less? Do you think that um, you know that's really kind of strengthened your? Do you think that helps to validate it, or do you think that it actually adds a different perspective? I think it. Um, it kind of confirms, um, you know, I guess most of the time, usually clinical trial confirms observation studies. So I'm really careful to 
did our study confirmed the dryer, uh, but it, it, I think with our results and it's the duplicate part is in line with uh, what the trial showed. Uh, you know, if you get really picky with the statistical significance, we can go on and on like, but I, I, I'm not a big p-value fan. So, <laughs> you know, point <laughs> estimate is in line with their point estimate. Um, mm-hmm. And it is, I think, really interesting. And we don't have a full, and I think the, the thing that people are bothered by is we don't have a good explanation why this is the case, right? We don't really know why, Tofa is a more harmful in certain patients. It's, there's really no good mechanism. Um, so, so that's a little bit annoying, like because we usually want to know, we usually want to know why this is the case, but we, we don't have that answer right now. But I, I think our result is you know, for bigger population somewhat reassuring for high risk cardiovascular uh, population among RA patients, I'll be very cautious. I'll be cautious. Well, thanks for giving us that perspective on essentially what seems like a two-track approach that we have to take to TOFA nowadays. Thanks very much for joining us today, Tim. Thank you, thank you. Hello, everyone. My name is Yus Yusuf. I'm from Leeds, United Kingdom. Uh, I'm reporting uh, at the ACR 21 Convergent Conference on behalf of uh, uh, RoomNow faculty. Today is uh, the final day of uh, ACR conference, a little bit sad. Um, However, there's still more um, data presented. And the one that really caught my eyes was the one from the late breaking abstract, uh, the abstract number L17. Um, So this uh, is a study, which is a randomized control trial from a group in Vienna, um, which look at whether uh, patients uh, who previously didn't seroconvert after the primary dose to mRNA vaccines, whether could they um, get response if you give the the third dose. So this is very interesting. Um, So what uh, they did was they randomized uh, these patients uh, into two groups, uh, one uh, to receive another mRNA vaccine, and while uh, the other group is uh, the vector vaccine, which is the Oxford. so um, what uh, they found, so uh, they measured the, the antibody afterwards. Um, there was an increase to so about 27% in total uh, people who seroconverted. Um, however, there was no difference, significant difference between if you were uh, you know, allocated uh, the mRNA vaccine or um, the, the vector vaccine. Um, and uh, uh, Interestingly as well, the uh, T-cell or the cellular response uh, further enhanced with the third dose. So overall, if we group it all together, all the 60 patients, um, there were 94% of people um, who actually had either seroconverted or um, had um, cellular response after the third dose. So um, this is really an exciting uh, data. Uh, especially, um, you know, if you are using uh, a lot of rituximab uh, you know, uh, to treat our patients, um, what we need to do now is urgently, we all um, need to um, offer and strongly encourage our patients to have the third dose as soon as possible, because this will give them protection in order to prevent from severe COVID. Um, so thank you um, uh, for listening. And I hope uh, you have all enjoyed uh, our coverage uh, from uh, ACR uh, 21, and hopefully we can meet 
you know, face-to-face -face or hybrid meeting uh, next year uh, in Philadelphia. So you can follow me at uh, my Twitter handle, use six Yusuf, and also, um, you, know, um, you know, browse, uh, you know, room now. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Bella Mehta reporting from New York for Room Now for the ACR 2021 conversions. In this video, I'd be talking about an interesting abstract which discusses factors associated with sustained cessation of medications for disease remission in systemic juvenile idiopathic arthritis patients. SJIA, which is systemic juvenile idiopathic arthritis, is a rare autoinflammatory disease which affects only 10 to 15% of juvenile idiopathic arthritis uh, children. It is formally called Stills disease and is considered a continuum of adult onset Stills disease. And with the advent of therapies such as IL-1, IL-6 blockade, outcomes have significantly improved even for this rare disease. High proportions of patients now achieve clinically inactive disease. And thus the question is, of all of the patients who achieve this inactive disease, how many can actually be off medications for a period of time? In this study, abstract number 0254, investigators, investigators leveraged the data from the CARA registry, which is the Childhood Arthritis and Rheumatology Research Alliance. This is a robust registry in pediatric rheumatic diseases. It was originally started in 2002 by a bunch of pediatric rheumatologists and now collects very detailed information, not only about demographics, medications, and all outcomes in pediatric rheumatology. Here, the authors identified around 500 patients with systemic GIA within the five-year period of 2015 to 2020. The primary outcome of interest was medication cessation for patients who have achieved disease remission, and the cessation period should be at least six months. Only 18% of the patients were able to completely wean off medications for greater than six months. And again, I think 18% is still a large number because this is a pretty severe disease. Of those patients who were able to wean off, they tried to figure out which are the important characteristics that can predict those patients who can be weaned off. So younger age, having normal CRP levels at the time of enrollment into the registry and shorter time between the diagnosis and start of medications was associated with successful discontinuation of medications for greater than six months, thus highlighting the importance of early diagnosis and early treatment um, to achieve sustained remission. Um, and also being able to get off medications is important here. And again, um, early treat to target strategies have been talked about uh, a lot. And now that we have medications which, which can actually do that, um, it's important that we discuss this, especially in a rare disease and a severe disease like this. Um, about 4% patients uh, developed macrophage activation syndrome, which is again a life-threatening complication, uh, often in SGIA patients. And as expected, none of these patients who developed MAS were able to get off medications. I particularly like this study because um, they have 500 patients systematically collected in a rare disease like SGIA. Also, um, it's, it shows us objective evidence towards what we traditionally thought that if you uh, diagnose accurately and early and start medications at the right time, uh, we will be able to import, 
achieve important outcomes such as getting off medications because that's the goal eventually you want to treat the patients get them into remission and then hopefully get them off medications because these are pediatric patients too and thank you so much for listening for more updates follow me on bella underscore meta hi i'm dr robert chow reporting live from acr 2021 for room now uh, this is our last day of ACR 2021, and I wanted to share my final highlights uh, in the world of spondyloarthritis with two abstracts. Uh, the first one is a very interesting abstract that did not only focus on spondyloarthritis, but I think spondyloarthritis kind of shine in this study. And this was abstract 196, which focused on drug monitoring of infliximab treatments uh, in the treatment of autoimmune inflammatory conditions. And they included a, a very wide array of conditions such as rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, uh, spondyloarthritis, uh, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, and psoriasis. Um, the data altogether did show there was an improvement um, from the two arms, which was uh, one arm uh, where they uh, dosed and um, uh, change of frequency of infliximab uh, on uh, the drug values in, in, the, in the serum. And the uh, second arm uh, where the clinician simply dosed the infliximab based on his clinical judgments. And they found in all of the conditions together, there was improvement in terms of um, efficacy and uh, no flares uh, from 73% compared to 55%. And when you look at the data in particular uh, for spondyloarthritis, there's a very big gap, 79% to 58%. So I think for me, um, you know, it, it does warrant some discussion and some thought the next time I have a patient on infliximab for spondyloarthritis, um, perhaps, you know, getting uh, you know, serum levels uh, will be an appropriate marker compared to our standard uh, treat as per your judgment. Um, and the last abstract is 1730. And I just wanted to wrap up ACR 2021 with a discussion that, you know, we see every year uh, in these conferences, which is what do you do with um, pregnant women who are on biologics for whatever reason? Um, and uh, this looked at uh, data from a German registry uh, and looking for disease activity and outcomes in pregnancies of uh, patients with spondyloarthritis. And they found 53% uh, were not on biologics at con uh, conception. 38% um, were exposed to biologics, but not at conception. And only 20% continued biologics during pregnancy. Uh, the biologics that they found patients use were primarily TNF inhibitors with uh, just one patient uh, using an IL-17 and uh, another patient using IL-1223 inhibitor. Um, the data is not surprising. They found that uh, moms who used uh, biologics throughout pregnancy had lower flares compared to those who did not. Um, they also did not find any uh, increase in, in worsening uh, pregnancy outcomes. Um, so I think, you know, this data, we see it over and over again, uh, which uh, I think the old adage rings true, which is healthy mom, healthy baby. And the other thing is, you know, if you look at the data itself, again, um, I think the really puzzling and concerning thing here is only 20% of patients um, were actually on biologics. 
Um, so whether or not that is physician hesitancy or patient hesitancy, uh, I don't think we know. But I do think we need to do a better job in, in making sure patients are adequately treated um, during pregnancy. So thank you for tuning in uh, for live coverage of ACR 2020. Uh, go to roomnow.com and follow me on Twitter at Dr. RBC. Thanks.